God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let us pray. Almighty God, your only Son came to earth in the form of a slave. He came to, he humbled himself and came to us in our condition of sin. And he is now enthroned at your right hand where he rules in glory. As he reigns as king in our hearts, in the midst of your church, and in this world, we rejoice in his peace and we give thanks for his justice and mercy. For with you and the Holy Spirit, he rules now and forever. And we pray that you would come and be present as our great king in our worship today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 309, Rejoice the Lord is King. Jesus came into this world, began his public ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. 
So let us turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ, confessing our sins in penitence and faith. Let us pray together. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. We have fallen into the pit of sin, and we cannot lift ourselves out of it. Deliver us, O God, for we trust in you. Be gracious to us, O Lord, for to you we cry all the day. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to our prayer. Listen to our plea for grace. For you are great, and you have done wondrous things in our Lord Jesus Christ, overthrowing the powers of sin, death, and the devil through the death and resurrection of your Son. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and be gracious to us, forgiving all our sins for Christ's sake. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts by the grace of your Holy Spirit to fear your name, for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. Saints of the living God, Jesus Christ is the one who is designated Lord. He is the one called by God the Father, the Lord, and therefore it is rooted, his being Lord is rooted in the very being of God. As scripture testifies, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is every name, which is above every name, and that name is Lord. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is one of, that's really the, one of the earliest confessions in the church. Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess that he's the Lord over all of life. That's what that means. It's not, we don't compartmentalize Jesus. He's the Lord over the demons and disease and uncleanness, the Lord over nature, as we saw, as we read in the scripture about him calming the sea. All those things are specifically um, referenced in the gospels. He victoriously defeats our sin. He is the Lord over the Sabbath and the law. You remember the dispute he got into with the Pharisees about his disciples eating grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus, uh, uh, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, it says in that story. And he's the Lord over us. He's the Lord over all human beings. When we confess he's Lord, we confess that he's the Lord over history and governments, the Lord over politics and economics, the Lord of recreation and study, the Lord of medicine and education, the Lord of marriage and celibacy, the Lord of wealth and culture. This flies in the face of our culture, of our society, which thinks that I, each one of us, are our own little lords of our own life. We get to decide our own identity. We get to decide all kinds of things about ourselves, so we think. But that's not what we confess in the church. We confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord over all of life. We make that confession verbally, but you see, we also must practice that confession. We don't just say and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We want to live that out. We want to live out our confession. And so in everything we do, we need to recognize that he's the Lord, and we seek to obey him and live our lives for him. As the apostle says to the church, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. 
For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our next hymn is 174, O Christ, our King, Creator, Lord. us bring our hearts and thoughts together to pray as the work of the church for the needs in this world. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all good gifts. We think at this time of year about the gifts we have received. We give thanks, but that thanksgiving begins with you. You give us life and health and friends and family, comforts and peace, and even as we hurt and have pains and and miss things in this world or lack things, you still have given to us many good things. Truly, you have not held back your goodness from us, and we in the church of all people know your goodness. You've given us through faith in Jesus Christ a place in your kingdom, grace to believe and serve you, and the great gift of your Holy Spirit. Hear our prayers now as we, your children, come straight to you for our help and care, and not ours alone, but for others. We pray you'd make strong the church throughout the world in its life and witness to Jesus Christ. Even in our weakness, may we confess you with one true faith 
and treat others according to the ways of your kingdom. Hear our prayers to the churches around the world. We especially pray for those under great trial and in areas of great violence, such as in Syria, Ukraine, Israel, and Palestine, and China. We pray for the churches there and pray you would hold them strong and firm and gather them around Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers. Hold your church together as one people in Christ who have been baptized with one baptism and sit together at one table. And therefore, we pray for the unity of your church, that the many ways of strife and dissension that we are so good at creating in the church, you would, you would put an end to that and bring reconciliation and peace and unity. Here are prayers for unity in the church. We implore you for the hungry and poor in our neighborhoods, in this country, and in this world. Give us the will to share our gifts of food and clothes and money and assistance with them. We pray you would reorder our lives and thoughts about our possessions according to your kingdom. Hear our prayers for the poor and for our moral action for the poor. Guide those who make and administer our laws, our rulers, our President Joe Biden, Gary Peters, Debbie Stabenow, our senators, the judges of the Supreme Court, our Governor Gretchen Whitmer. We pray that justice would overcome crime and wickedness. Help us to know that the gospel transcends our politics so that we do not try to divide and separate justice out in a partisan way. Do not let disordered desires and acts be condoned. Humble the mighty. Give us the grace to resist the sexual disorder that abounds in our country. And may we promote right relationships between men and women. Grant us civil peace and discourse without sacrificing right moral order. Hear our prayers for our nation. And now look upon this congregation with your favor and salvation. Fill us with faith and hope and love as your word is heard and as we share the communion meal. And whether we are sick or healthy, poor or rich, young or old, may we be exceedingly joyful that Christ brings your kingdom into this world. We pray for those who are sick or need help of some kind. For Frida, Jeff and Linda, Bob and Fawn, Eduardo and Shirley. Tammy's family, Amy, Lauren, and her family, our friends Becky and Angie, Karen, Barbara, Hope, Jane, Susan, Tom, Bob, Phil, and others we name to you in silence. Grant them the aid they need. Look upon them with the eyes of your mercy. Comfort them with the knowledge of your goodness. Preserve them from the temptations of the enemy and give them patience under their affliction. In good time, restore them to health, and if their days are at an end, keep them in Christ. Enable them to lead the remainder of their lives in faithful reverence to you and to your glory. Prepare us by your grace for our life in this world and for our own impending deaths. 
We ask you, O Lord, to make our church a place where people are instructed in the Christian faith, in worship, in practice. Give us the grace to go out and invite more people into this congregation. We pray that more and more people would be converted from paganism and just a raw secularism, ignorance of the gospel, morally disordered lives. Enable the presence of the church with its preaching and teaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to be a cause for the help of people in the cities in which we live. For your mercy and relief, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. And now we pray our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word, how much we indeed need your word. We need these words of life and light. And hope. 
pray that you'd illuminate our hearts to receive uh, the gospel and that by receiving it, we would be equipped for the life to which you've called us, the life of the world to come, prepare us for our citizenship and our mission uh, there as well. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from Ezekiel, chapter 34. Beginning in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There shall lie down there they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my people, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? And to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set them over them. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Our Psalter response is printed in the bulletin. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he 
We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And his courts with praise. For the Lord is good. And his faithfulness to all generations. We will turn next to our epistle reading in Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was thirsty, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, 
and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. We confess that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. In Scripture, one of the aspects of being a king is judging. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, which means he's king over all the world, over all the rulers, and the rulers would then represent all the nations, all the kingdoms. He's ruler over all of those, over all of creation, over all of life, over all people in every way. And that includes us Christians. Jesus Christ is the king and judge over everything we do, say, think, and produce in the church and in our own personal Christian lives. That's daunting when you stop and think about it. That means he's the king and judge over our worship, what we're doing right now, our prayers, our beliefs, our theology, our practices, our traditions, all of that. None of it's immune or somehow uh, excluded from being under his, his uh, judgment. And that also includes our responses to each other and to those outside the church. In our gospel reading, Jesus speaks of moral acts. These are all moral acts put in a very, uh, very famous storyline. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and prisoners. These are acts of mercy, and they are moral responsibilities we have to others. Now, Jesus is not the first, nor will he be, is he the last, to speak of our moral obligation to help others. Lots of people talk about that. It, it is the season to talk about our moral obligation, about uh, helping those who are in need. Um, that's the assumption that's made in all those advertisements, <clears throat> those appeals that we get through the media about giving money to some organization so we can help provide basic care for impoverished, child, impoverished children or all the other um, appeals that are made. It, we have a moral responsibility to help. They have their own ways of putting it, and a lot of times it's trying to tug on your, your sympathy or compassion, but they're making a moral appeal. And that could be local, it could be international, it doesn't matter. It's the basis for the appeal made by the Salvation Army, United Way, St. Jude's Hospital, World Vision, all those other charitable organizations. We have a moral duty to help others. And this is the time of year when we get the big push for charitable gifts, the giving. Um, if you still get mail in your mailbox, I think some people have given up checking their mailboxes, but if you still, sorry, Randy. Um, but... Uh, uh, they still check their mailboxes, and they find these letters and all these uh, this uh, mass uh, uh, advertisement coming out asking for help. We got a letter. Have you ever gotten one where you actually got some money in it? We got one the other day that had a nickel in it, and I don't know what we could do with it. You can't even buy a postage stamp for a nickel. But um, that same sort of message. Won't you help us do this, whatever it is? 
And the needs are great. Winter's coming, and so uh, there are people who've lost jobs. Um, there are many who are homeless, and this is the time we begin to think about that and, and hear about it. They have nowhere to go. They stand outside in the cold. We can start to parse or try to break down their motives or their irresponsibility and all of that, but the bottom line is they have nowhere to go. They are out in the cold. They need warm clothes. If anyone's a stranger, naked, and hungry, it's the homeless. It's just, that's just obvious, right? And there are many in prison. There are Christians in the prisons. We go up there, um, Chaz and I mostly now go up to the prisons, and we always, when we have our worship service, we get those who are interested in coming. And sometimes we get some who are not, you know, pretty clearly not Christians and yet want to get out of the cell and just be somewhere else, so they come. Um, and they're you're respectful and all that. And then we have others who say, yeah, I, I'm in this church, I'm in that church. And, uh, and, and I, I never ask, but I always kind of want to know, how did, how did you end up here? But um, we may not understand how that happens, but there they are. There are Christians in the jails. There are also non-Christians in, in prison and not in, in the uh, city or county prisons. They're captive. They're imprisoned in other ways. They're captive to drugs or alcohol, pornography, meaninglessness, and on it goes. There are all kinds of people imprisoned in our society who don't stand behind bars. And there are many who are sick. They lie in their houses being sick or on hospital beds. The weak, the lonely, perhaps they're discouraged, not sure what's going to happen to them, maybe all alone. Today, charity has been organized, and so we are sent requests to contribute to those who are in need. And volunteers are always welcomed, donations accepted, money greatly, gratefully received. Most everyone says we have a moral obligation to help others. It's only the most hard of heart, the most scroogiest of the scrooges, who would say we don't have a moral obligation. We can live our own self-centered life and totally ignore the needs of others. There are not very many people who would say that. And the Christian church, of course, says this, that we have a moral obligation to help others, but so do those who are not Christian. Companies promote a moral duty to help those in need. They sponsor warming shelters or food programs, things you can donate to. Um, schools, post offices collect canned goods. At uh, Planet Fitness, just down here on 10 Mile, they have a big box full of canned goods. It seems to be the thing to do today. Corporate America wants to be a part of, uh, senses this moral duty to help others. There's Doctors Without Borders that goes into many communities in the world, offers medical care, and they're looking for qualified volunteers. These are not necessarily Christian organizations, but they are committed to acts of mercy. So Jesus is not the only one who tells us that we are to do acts of mercy. What Jesus does reveal that none of the others reveal is that our acts of mercy, whether we do them or not, are judged by him. And that comes out very plainly in our lesson this morning. Jesus presents a picture to us in our gospel reading from Matthew 25. It's a scene of the final judgment, and he etches it out. There are different ways that you can, you can uh, tell somebody something, but he etches it out with his words. So he creates a picture, a scene with his words. And Jesus opens the scene for us. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And it's a picture of the end of history. 
Jesus returns. He comes again. And the first time he came, we've been celebrating that. We uh, remember that at Christmas time, um, and we we uh, we've experienced that and, and celebrated that in the church ever since he first came. He came in humility to redeem God's creation, to give us life as a sacrifice for our sin, give his life as a sacrifice for our sin. The second time Jesus comes, he will come in majesty and glory as the ruler over all. Same Jesus, two different comings, they're linked together. The crucified one is the one who returns as judge, and, um, and that's at the end of history. The second time Jesus comes, he will come in majesty and glory as the ruler over all. And that's what our Ephesians text, the epistle reading, um, lays out there. It says that God the Father has worked out his purpose of salvation in his son Jesus Christ. And then it talks about raising him from the dead and seating him at, at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. We hear that far above, and I think in our culture today we hear that as far and away, like out of sight, out of, out of uh, the picture. That's not at all what it means. It means it's the image of a king who's, been, who's sitting on his throne, who's been raised up to his position of ruling, and everyone who comes in to him is under him. It's not that he's gone. It's that he's over in terms of authority and power and might, and there he is today, Jesus at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Well, Jesus will come in a very visible way at the end of history as the great king. And he will not come merely to be hailed and praised and for a whole lot of people to go, wow, I I didn't realize, I didn't believe it, but it's true. It's not that he comes just for that, although we will hail him and praise him and every knee shall bow. But those who have not submitted to him now will bend their knee to him in humility. So everyone will be before him. He will come as our judge. Jesus, the great king, will sit as judge. And in this picture, in Matthew, Jesus presents, that, that Jesus presents to us, he's seated on his glorious throne. You see, that's that judgment, that, that uh, place of judgment. And all the people are gathered before him. All the people. All those who have lived and died before us, we have no idea how many that is. We talk about how we're approaching 8 billion people in the world now. Well, there's more than that that have preceded us. All those who come after us, how many more of those? We don't know. You and me, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every person is standing before King Jesus. You see, every one of us lives in relationship to Jesus, every single person. We may have faith in him or we may not have faith in him. We may love him or we may hate him. We may desire to hear his word and serve him or we may be apathetic about Jesus. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. He's, he's those people's God. Whatever the case, we are all in relationship to Jesus and he is your judge. In this picture of the final judgment, Jesus divides all the people who are standing before him. The huge, massive, innumerable multitude of every people who has ever been conceived, he divides them. And he does not take each one as a unique and special case, which is so un-American. Each one have our own rules, our own reasons for, you know, this is how you should judge me. 
Um, we all think we're unique in special cases. He does not make billions of divisions or a thousand or ten or even three divisions. He makes one division. It's the picture of a shepherd wading through his flocks with his staffs separating the sheep from the goats, moving them to one side or the other. It's a very common, it was a very common image back in the first century. And in this picture, he divides them based on their acts of mercy, not on the color of their fur or whatever sheep and goats have, hair and fur, not based on whether big or small, none of that based on their acts of mercy. After he's made the division with one group on Jesus' left and the other on his right, Jesus pronounces his judgment. And this judgment is based on whether or not they did acts of mercy. He commends them on his right for giving food and giving drink, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and the prisoners. But those on, the, on his left, he condemns for not giving food, not giving drink, not welcoming the stranger, not clothing the naked, and not visiting the sick and prisoners. And here again, we see this is in relationship to Jesus. It's all in relationship to Jesus. Those who fed the hungry, gave the drink, clothed the naked, welcomed the sick, visited the sick and prisoners, did it to me, says Jesus. And those who did not feed the hungry, give the drink, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, visit the sick and prisoners, did not do it to me, says Jesus. Now here's something for us to consider. Acts of mercy are not random, and they're not strictly secular deeds. Jesus is never out of the picture, ever, with acts of mercy or not, no acts of mercy. In fact, he's right in the middle of it all. Jesus puts it this way, acts of mercy are done to him or not to him. We've, we've uh, sort of um, romanticized that or emotionalized that statement, you did it to me, and so we just picture the person who needs help as Jesus. You know, there's Jesus, but in the form of, a homeless person or in the form of a poor person and all, which maybe tugs at our compassion and all, but that's not what's going on here. Jesus is standing in the midst of all of the moral responsibility or lack of responsibility in this world as our judge. And that's a very different kind of image. Finally, in the picture of the final judgment, Jesus presents to us, to uh, those who listen to him, the rewards those on the right who did the acts of mercy receive the blessing of the Father. And King Jesus says to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the judgment made upon them, the blessing of God. That's a judgment. And God, uh, Jesus makes that judgment on the ones on his right, the blessing of God. And it's more than words. Blessed are you. And, and everyone walks away. It's, it is a place in God's kingdom of peace and righteousness and life lived without sin, guilt, pain, and lack. That's what blessedness of God is. In God's kingdom, there's no more hunger, thirst, nakedness, sickness, or imprisonment. It's not there anymore. So to live under God's blessing is to live under the unending favor and love of God. On the other hand, those who did not do the acts of mercy received the curse of God, Jesus says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's a very horrible judgment to receive. It's, it's so bad we can't even fully comprehend how horrible it is. You see, the curse of God is not just a negative word. It's not just something negative that people receive and go, Oh, he doesn't like me. No, it's, it's worse than that. <laughs> 
It's to live under the unending punishment and condemnation of God with, with no way out. And once more, the outcome of the acts of mercy, you see, is in relationship to Jesus. Acts of mercy have a consequence. Our moral responsibility has a consequence to it, and that consequence is in relationship to Jesus. So our moral acts are in relationship to Jesus, who is the king of the nations, our great judge. Jesus requires acts of mercy from everyone. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us Christians, that he expects us to respond in a moral way, a good moral way to other people. He requires that of us. He expects us of, that of us. It may be a surprise to people who are not in the church, but it doesn't mean it isn't expected of them either. We all have a moral responsibility to help others. God has created us in relationship to other people. We are not just individuals who stand on our own. He has created us with a moral responsibility in a relationship to others and to him. So God has created us as moral creatures. We are inescapably moral beings. And we all know this because we all have some sense of ought in our life. We ought to do this, or you ought not to do that. And we might try to define that in our own personal way, but we still have that, that, that sense of that there's a, an ought, a right and a wrong. And there's nothing optional about acts of mercy. Doing acts of mercy is to act as a morally responsible creature of God and not like an animal. Now, sometimes you see animals that flock together, live in, in hives or, or swarms or, or, or uh, herds together, and they will work together as a team to do something. Um, I'm not at all trying to imply that animals have this strong sense of moral responsibility. In fact, I'm trying to say they really don't. And if you watch animals closely, if you have a weak member of the herd or the swarm or the hive, that one is going down. And not from the outside, probably, but from the inside. Um, it's just you either pull your weight or you're done with, with the group. And that's about the best it gets in nature. Um, most of the time, you just see one animal without any, any concern um, for the others, uh, especially if it's wounded. Moral responsibility is something that we have as human beings. Acts of mercy are required of the nations, and they are required of us in the church. So in the final judgment scene, Jesus refers to the least of my brothers. He says this to both groups, both to the group on his left and the group on his right. The least of my brothers. He says, says, it, um, he says it to them, and they're both puzzled. Both sides are puzzled. They don't know. They did not know that their acts of mercy were in relationship to Jesus. When did we feed you, give you drink, welcome you, and visit you, they say to Jesus. The same thing for those who are cursed. When did we not feed you, not give you drink, not welcome you, not visit you? And to both groups, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did not do it to me. Now there's been a lot of debate in Christian circles about who Jesus means when he says, The least of these my brothers. And one interpretation is that Jesus is referring to Christians. So my brothers are the brothers and sisters of the church. You are the least of my, my uh, the, the least of these my brothers. Brothers being inclusive, brothers and sisters. 
This is Christ's family and all those who have been baptized and have faith in him and belong to the community of his people. That would be this interpretation. It's just referring to, the, to the, uh, his family, Christ's family. And we all have a moral obligation to help one another in the church to help those in need. Another interpretation of Jesus' words, the least of my brothers, is that it refers to anyone in need. Jesus teaches the church to be merciful to our neighbor, and our neighbor is not limited to those inside the church. This interpretation would point out that in the final judgment scene, the nations are gathered together, and they're judged by whether or not they did acts of mercy. Not just the church, the nations. And so all people stand before the Lord. The church's teaching has always said that we are to do acts of mercy to those who are in need. And we're not to just ignore those outside the church. We're not to limit our mercy to those who are Christians and ignore those outside. My own conclusion is that the least of these, my brothers, refers to Christians. I think that fits, especially the way Matthew uses you know, the word brothers there um, in his gospel. It's, it's not a generic reference to everyone. In the gospel, Jesus calls his disciples his brothers and sisters. It's his disciples he calls that. However, that doesn't mean the church is free from a moral obligation to help those who are not Christians. See, I, that's the problem when you sometimes come down on one side or the other with an interpretation, is that you tend to exclude the other side completely, and that, that would be um, wrong. That would be inappropriate. It's not that we are then free from a moral obligation to those who are not Christians. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Remember that, that parable or that, that uh, story he told the Good Samaritan? And he, he said it to the scribe who asked him, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says that, is, that your neighbor is everyone you come into contact with. There are no limits to the mercy we are to show. Scripture says, be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful, period. And there are no qualifications given. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful to those inside the church. No, it just says, be merciful. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. The Lord Jesus Christ will judge everyone. He will judge the nations in the church. He will judge our acts of mercy or the lack thereof. It's, this is a serious thing. We need to take it to heart. People outside the church will be judged by their acts of mercy to others and what they did for Christians. Did they help the church in need or did they turn away from it? Jesus will judge people for how they treat his brothers and sisters. He will judge them for the, whether they do their acts of mercy or not, but he will also judge them for how they act and treat, other Christian, uh, treat Christians. And so to give you an extreme example, the ISIS terrorists that have been active, they're still active, quite frankly, uh, to be honest, in Syria. And one day they will stand before Jesus and they'll be judged for not showing acts of mercy to the Christians in Iraq and Syria. Um, the Roberts and I have a friend, old friends, I haven't seen them for years, I don't even know if they're still alive, but uh, uh, Natik and, what was her name? Um, she used to gather the grape leaves at your Suad, Naaman, they're from Mosul, Iraq, and they were members of the First Presbyterian Church over there. Uh, Mosul was, was taken over by ISIS back in the 2000s, and um, basically it's, it's just been destroyed, leveled, and it was a strong Christian area. A lot of Chaldean Christians lived there and um, were uh, killed. A lot of them were killed or displaced, and ISIS will be judged for that someday. Um, they will also be judged for their lack of mercy to other people, but certainly to the church. 
Jesus calls everyone to account for their acts of mercy or their lack thereof. And we who are Christians will be judged the same way. Jesus will judge us according to our response to those within the church, our fellow brothers and sisters. Do we ignore one another? When there's a need, do we just expect someone else to jump in and take care of it? Are we helping? Are we sharing? Are we involved in those acts of mercy? Um, And this is a big part of what we do at the Lord's Supper. We come as co-members of Christ's body. We affirm that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the same family, and therefore, we're to show acts of mercy um, to each other. We have been joined together in Christ, and therefore, we're to help one another. We have a moral obligation in Christ to give help to those of us who are in need. And quite frankly, in this church, we're good at that. We've done that very well. But Jesus' judgment of us will not stop at these walls, and that's what we really need to take into to, to heart, all of us. We need to show mercy to the stranger. The stranger is the one we don't know, the one who comes to us from the outside. And these strangers may very well not be Christians, but we are to show them mercy. Jesus holds us to what he requires of us. Now, what Jesus requires of us are simple acts of mercy. They're simple. This is not trying to create some huge um, task for us to do. We American Christians like to think big. We're a very big, powerful, wealthy nation. And so we think of things like eliminating poverty. Wow. (laughs) Where? Like, we think about it in terms of the whole world. We're going to eliminate poverty from this whole world. We're going to end homelessness. And churches like to organize well-structured programs to achieve these ends. American churches kind of pick up on that, and we think we can do these things. We, we get these mega goals. There's a church in California some years ago that decided it wanted to stop hunger in Los Angeles County. I didn't bother to look up the population of Los Angeles County, but it's millions So they made a plan. They mobilized donations and workers. They set out to provide food for everyone in the county who needed it. And that's a big task. And as far as I know it, they're still at it because guess what? They haven't eliminated that um, the hunger in uh, Los Angeles, but they're working at it. But there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong in and of itself doing that, but it's, it's an enormously ambitious goal, and it gives smaller churches like ours the thought that, oh, we can't do anything like that. So I guess we're just not going to help those outside the church. Well, that's not at all what comes out of our text here. Jesus doesn't require of us anything that's daunting. As for the things Jesus mentions in the picture of the sheep and the goats, it's feeding those we meet who are hungry. It's giving drink. It's clothing the naked, visiting the sick and in prison, welcoming the stranger. Jesus doesn't expect us to eliminate these things. It's just simply to show acts of mercy, to do acts of mercy for those who have that need. He just tells us that we have a moral responsibility to show basic acts of mercy. We don't have to be a big church. We don't have to be a wealthy church to do these things. In fact, we're not trying to do these acts of mercy here. Um, Sorry, we are trying to do these acts of mercy here in this church. We are collecting food. In in our very small way, we're collecting food for the hungry. We have a closet. pantry there. Don't forget the pantry. It's easy to walk out of here after the sermon and and then we go, you know, during the week shopping and getting our food and we just forget about it. Well, don't forget. (laughs) We have a pantry and we are good about taking it over when it fills up. We, We work with another church nearby that serves the food. 
to um, those who are hungry. And the clothing. Now is the time of year when people need more clothing. So bring in used clothing, and we can get it to the places it needs to go. Um, you can volunteer at the homeless shelters. And, of course, um, at the right time of year because it requires a process, but you can join in and, and work with us when we go visit the prisoners at the Oakland County Jail. Now, these are like literal carryovers from our lesson this morning. There are lots of other things we can do that are acts of mercy. But just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's optional or it's an afterthought for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's as important as reading your Bible and praying every day. Now, Jesus reveals to us that he is the judge of the nations, judge of all people, and judge of you and me. And he's the judge who actually holds us accountable for our lives. He holds us accountable, including our acts of mercy. And that should wake us up. It really should. Uh, you're not going to hear that from the charitable organizations. They, they make their pitches to you, and the best they seem to be able to do is just to pull on your heartstrings. This thing will wake you up. And we hear it from the word of God. We shall all stand before King Jesus in judgment. Now, there's guilt. There's guilt in the whole thing uh, that we feel. We can try to take our moral responsibility less seriously. We can tell ourselves, yeah, it's good to do these things, but it's not so bad if we don't. Jesus forgives us, right? We can come up with a lot of excuses for ourselves. I'm too busy. I don't have it on my radar screen. I don't make much money. It doesn't make a difference. These people are irresponsible. They don't deserve it. I pay my taxes. We can come up with lots of excuses. And the mindset in our society today is just about denying our guilt, and yet the guilt is there. We have this sense that I don't measure up. I'm not doing this as much as I should. I, I forget when I go out. I miss the opportunities. When I see a need, I immediately start to judge them in my own mind, and I don't want to help them. Well, the Word of God exposes that. We do have a selfish streak in us. We'd rather spend our money on ourselves. We'd rather not take the time to help someone else. And then we become callous towards those in need who show up. But for all those acts of mercy we've done to others, there are also those acts of mercy that we have not done. The Lord Jesus will not accept these excuses when we stand before him in the final judgment. He's not going to accept any of those excuses. The king answers those excuses in our lesson today. He says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So it would seem that we're left in a position of this moral requirement. We're morally responsible. We feel guilty about not living up to it. We're doing acts of mercy as it suits us, and we're trying to deny our guilt. And that's a very, very hard way to live, very dissonant. It's like two notes together on the scale being played at the same time, and it's, you know, it just throws you off. And it would all be this way and, and probably lead to people giving up or just kind of dropping into a very, very self-centered life, except for one thing, and that's Jesus. The great king is also our savior. The one who judges us is also our Savior. The Lord who judges us is also the one who goes to the cross to be the sacrifice to cleanse us of our sin and guilt. Through him comes forgiveness of our selfishness and the hardness of our heart. That we need to hear and receive uh, regularly, and we do in our worship service. But that's not all there is to it. Confessing that Jesus is our Lord, trusting in him as our true Savior, he changes us. 
very much a part of the whole Christian faith and the Christian life is transformation. He changes us with his Holy Spirit and the word of God. He makes us into merciful people. He reconciles us to God. He makes us children of our Father, and our characters begin to change. Now, this is happening slowly, maybe imperceptibly throughout our whole lives, but it is, it is happening as we cling to Christ in faith, as we are joined with him. He makes us merciful as he is merciful. We want to help others. We may not always be very good about putting that into action, but the desire's there in a way that's, that's wanting to be faithful to Jesus, not just out of some kind of heart-tugging emotion. And we want to do that. And we have done it. We've seen that happening more and more in our lives. We want to do these acts of mercy. We even do them sometimes at cost to ourselves. What Jesus does by his grace is he makes us sheep and not goats. Therefore... Let us confess our sin, let us be honest, and say that we have not been always faithful in our moral responsibility to others. But also let us trust him as our king and our savior, not just the one who judges us and puts moral requirements on us, but as our savior who saves us from our failure and our own selfishness. And then let us go forth and obey him, out of that prompting, out of that growth and transformation that's happening in our lives. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore us by your well-beloved Son, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, mercifully grant that we and those who are enslaved by sin may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, and that we may see those who are in need and reach out to them. We pray this in Jesus' name, our King, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith with the Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God, begotten, not made, in one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 255, O Jesus, we adore thee.
about the work of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and this is the Sunday once a year when we collect the diaconal offering or the OPC thank offering um, for the work of our denomination. So if the ushers could please come forward and collect that offering. This is the Lord's table where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord and where we have true fellowship with one another as co-members of his one body. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do welcome to this table all who have been baptized and publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ and belong to a Christian church. In the, in the OPC, we say are a communicative member in good standing of a Christian church. That sometimes gets lost on people. So we um, try to make that a little simpler at this point and say that you're, you belong, you are identified with a Christian church as a, a member. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for, sorrow for and willingness to turn away from sin, and a determination and reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life in peace with and love towards your brothers and sisters. Now, Christian people, today we've been reminded that Jesus Christ is the great king who judges our moral response to the needy. This day we have confessed our sins, we've received the assurance of God's forgiveness, we've heard his call to live in love. So as you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him, and strengthened by the sacrament, receive from Christ our King who judges us the grace that transforms us to help the needy. Rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Join me in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give thanks and praise. We do give you thanks, O Heavenly Father, our great and mighty King, as it is right and fitting for us to do. You've created all things, and we serve and honor and praise your holy and beautiful name. 
and we receive that we raise our praise to you with the angels of heaven and that host that are forever singing holy 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 god of power and might heaven and earth are full of your glory hosanna in the highest especially now we remember and thank you that you sent your son into this world he was conceived by the holy spirit and was born a man in majestic obedience he rode into jerusalem to die on the cross and he was lifted up from earth to heaven to the king of our salvation. From there he continues to reign now as the crucified and exalted Christ. Through your son Jesus Christ you have led us out of sin and darkness and death and condemnation into the life of your new creation. And we confess with your church as we come to this table that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We thank you that even after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he did not abandon us, but he sent us your spirit, and so he is present with us now. We ask you to bless this cup and this bread with the Holy Spirit so that we are fed by Christ and nourished by him. As surely as we taste the bread and the cup of the Lord, even so, may he nourish and refresh um, us for eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. And not only us, but his whole body, the whole church. And so, having communed with Christ and being strengthened by your grace, may we go out into the world to serve you in faith and love. Our thanksgiving we offer to you in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. And with one voice we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never die, but have life everlasting. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Merciful God, our Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, fed the hungry with the bread of his life and the word of his kingdom. Renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your true and living bread, who is alive and reigns now and forever. Amen. Our final hymn is number 318, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. <laughs> Son and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. 
Good morning. I have a few announcements that you will see printed in the insert in your bulletin, beginning with our adult um, Christian education class, another lesson today um, in the uh, narrative apologetics class. There will, well, I'll just echo Pastor again uh, about the uh, Food for the Deacon's Pantry, that's a note in the bulletin, so let's just refresh our memories as to that need. And next Sunday, after worship, there will be a reception for the baby Jace, Jace Swanson, Rebecca's, and Daniel, Daniel's son, and Pastor and Heidi's grandson. And that will replace Christian Ed for that day. Anything else, Grandma Wilson? Uh, you know, I'm always requesting prayer when the cats come home, and now the granny kittens, and I've got one. I've got one that's the fashionista. I got another who can get in the trash faster than Mr. Kelly's airmail, and I've got uh, used to. And then I've got this baby that goes from zero to ten in comfort level, like. Something there about cats and diapers. Uh, I... yeah. yeah, there's the, uh, <clears throat> the shower celebration for uh, Rebecca and Daniel, my daughter, who live in Colorado now but just had a baby. And so they're going to be back here next Sunday, and everyone's welcome, including those who uh, weren't here today. Um, just to let you know, the Thursday evening study is on hold now. We're, we take our break until January, so um, that's, that has stopped. Mrs. Hannum. Um, prayers for Amy Lawrence, who <clears throat> has passed away. Um, her, her mother? Yes. Okay. Thanks, Barbara. Barbara's updating us that Amy Lauren was able to um, make the trip to Texas before her mother died this week. 
last night. Okay. So pray for Amy, please. And with that, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>